thank you so much. Forest Hills, it is a joy to be with you guys. You guys are my favorite congregation, other than my own. But I love you guys a ton, and it's a joy to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Genesis. And so today is sort of part two of last week, where we see Abraham uh, intercede on behalf of a city before God. It's a really powerful uh, narrative about prayer and about what the gospel lens is on our prayers. Uh, but before we begin, um, I want to tell you one of my favorite uh, basketball stories that can relate to today's uh, message. Um, I'm not a Chicago Bulls fan, but I am a Michael Jordan fan. In fact, I was gifted these shoes that were sort of modeled after his first year in basketball. And this is one of my favorite stories about um, the Bulls. Uh, in January of 1993, there was a basketball veteran named uh, Daryl Walker. He receives a call from the Bulls general manager, uh, Jerry Krause, and he says, hey, Daryl, uh, would you be interested in a, just a 10-day contract with us? And given the fact that the Chicago Bulls just had won back-to-back championships with Michael Jordan at the lead there, uh, Daryl Walker screams out like, absolutely, yes, I'm, I want to be on this team. Now, at this point in Walker's career, he had just played nine seasons with the NBA, but he never won an NBA championship. And to make matters worse, at the start of this season, his previous team, the Detroit Pistons, didn't renew his contract. So here he is three months into the season, and Walker has no team to play for, and it seems like his NBA career is like officially over. Until ring, 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 Jerry calls, and he gets the job. This 10-day contract turns into another 10-day contract, which turns into a whole nother contract for the rest of the season, a season that ends him finally up to the NBA Finals. Now check this out, this is my favorite part about that. The dude plays a total of five minutes in the entire six games of the series. His contributions, a turnover, and a missed free throw. Way better than I would do, just to be really honest with you. Guys, way better than me. But still, dude gets no points, no blocks, no steals, nothing, and still wins the NBA championship. It's a huge deal. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible if you can contribute nothing, your team ends up winning? Well, he won through the work of others done on his behalf. And Christians, you see where I'm going with this, right? The victory earned by another, mainly Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and the others, was a victory that was accredited to Walker, even though his performance was bleak. And again, he'd be way better than I would be out there for sure. And oddly enough, this is exactly what our passage is all about today, namely how the righteousness of another can be a righteousness that's accredited to you to me, our neighbors and friends through Christ. And this is what we see in uh, today's message. And we're gonna answer this uh, title question, how does Abraham point us to Christ? And we're gonna see all about God's righteousness in this passage. Uh, so today's passage starts out in verse 22 uh, by giving us a transition from what we studied last week. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'll kind of pick you up a little bit from uh, where we were. Uh, it starts in verse 22 where it says, so the men turned from there, and they went down towards Sodom. But Abraham, by contrast, stood before the Lord. Now, guys, last week we saw that God, through a Christophany, sort of God taking form, not flesh yet, but it's uh, foreshadowing how God would take on flesh in Christ. But God came, took on form, and two angels were with him. And they came to share both a meal and a promise with Abraham. The promise being that in one year's time, 
he and his wife would have a miraculous son born to them in their really, really, really old age. Abraham is nearing 100, and Sarah is getting up there as well. At the conclusion of this meal, God says to them in verse 20 and 21, hey guys, because of the outcry against Sodom, and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I personally will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Now, we'll get to more of Sodom and Gomorrah and what's happening next week, but I love the fact that God is seeing something in verse 21. I love verse 21 because it reveals something about the heart of God. It shows us that God hears every cry of injustice that takes place in the world in which he created, which means that no level of abuse or neglect, no area of persecution or oppression, no place of systemic injustice escapes the ears of a God that is attuned to the cries of his creation. I love that about our God. And in this passage, we see that not only does God hear the outcries, but he draws near to them. He takes injustice seriously, and then he deals with it personally, which is what God will ultimately do with all injustices. In fact, Psalm 140, 12 says this, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and he'll execute justice for the needy. So knowing that this is in fact the case about God, Abraham actually does something shocking that we have not yet seen in our study through Genesis. Abraham in this moment begins to intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom. He begins to pray for their city before God, and we have never seen this yet in our study in the book. Verse 23 says this, then Abraham drew near to the Lord, and he said, God, would you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Like, like hold on, like, just, just hear that for a second here. Abraham is acting like an attorney on behalf of Sodom here. Like, this is wild, right? Like, guys, this is the same city that took part in capturing his nephew Lot. And then Abraham had to go to war amongst nine other kings and their armies to get him back. Like these are not buddies of his. They don't like go to a brewery together. They don't hang out and watch the Celtics. Like they are not friends together. And to my knowledge, Abraham still isn't a fan of Sodom. But he is moved with compassion. And he begins to intercede with this city, knowing that God must bring justice to where there's outcries of injustice. And the question for us is why? Like, why doesn't Abraham just let God go and as Psalm 140 says, to execute justice for the needy? Why does he just let him go? Why does Abraham approach God and then intercede on behalf of Sodom? Guys, I think it's because Abraham knows that God is a sparing God. God is a God who is loving and forgiving. And so he's asking God to do for Sodom what God has done for him. Guys, see, time and time again, as you've watched Abraham's story, you've watched God spare Abraham. Do you guys remember when he lied in Genesis 12 and he cheated and he sacrificed his wife to another man because he loved his own life more than hers? And God spared him. You guys remember when Abraham was worshiping false gods before Genesis 12 and he was rebelling in a land that was far from God and his people, and God spared him even in his rebellion. 
Guys, God even spared him when he sinfully took a second wife, Hagar, got her pregnant, and then messed up his own family. God spared him. Abraham is moved with compassion for others. Why? Because of the compassion that God has shown him. Forest Hills, if I can ask you, has that sort of compassion from God moved in your life yet? Or maybe an enemy like a Sodom, or maybe someone you've had a hard relationship or a challenging history with, rather than maybe anger and bitterness rising up, that God has moved that towards compassion. It doesn't mean that there maybe not need to be boundaries or hard conversations or confrontation, but it does mean that what God has done for us in his compassion, he wants to move through us in compassion to others. Amen? What's that look like in your own life? This is how it plays out with Abraham. And how does it play out with you? Who do you need to maybe pray for and move in compassion towards? Because how God has moved towards you. So it's with this compassion in mind, church, that Abraham approaches the court bench in verse 23. He draws near to God. He approaches him. And just notice, by the way, that they're already in a conversation. And then it says, like, Abraham approaches him. It's a different approach. It's the attorney approach. He's coming towards the bench and giving his case to intercede and mediate on behalf of Sodom. So Abraham opens up his beginning statement in the courtroom of God with a question. He says, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And guys, this is really an honest question for Abraham. He knows that God is not only a God of mercy, as we've seen in his own life, but he knows that God is a God of justice. He knows that God must deal in righteousness to all injustice because he is, in fact, a God of justice, and he moves along through his character. But Abraham, in this moment, guys, is actually confused about how this justice will play out alongside of God's mercy. So again, he asks, God, in bringing justice to Sodom, will you unintentionally bring justice to those who may not deserve it? Guys, his question reveals to us his concern. It reveals his compassion, but it also really shows some curiosity about the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. So Abraham, in this moment, begins this deep dive investigative intercession on behalf of Sodom. And guys, it's really wild. So let me show you what I mean here. Verse 24, it says this. He says, God, suppose... There are 50 righteous people within that city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom, and he's exploring the terms of a possible theological contract with God. He's saying, God, you love righteousness like so much, and you're also a God of mercy, that through that, would you be willing to spare unrighteous people through the presence of 50 righteous people standing in their place? But then before God even answers, Abraham answers his own question. In verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, God, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Well, then God answers his question with a rather surprising response. God is incredibly patient. And he responds in verse 26 like this. And the Lord says, yes, if I find at Sodom 
50 righteous in the city. I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, I can only imagine for a moment how amazed that Abraham is in hearing this newfound theological principle that God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous standing in their place. We're learning the gospel according to God's conversation with Abraham. And it's a profound one, and so much so that Abraham is really humbled at this thought and says in verse 27, he's like shocked. He's like, behold, I'm a little nervous. I've undertaken to speak to the Lord in this court case. He says, but I am but dust and ashes. God's response is bringing humility in his heart. But then Abraham ups the ante a little bit. He says, God, for a moment, would you suppose though that five of the 50 righteous are lacking? Maybe they're out to lunch, they're out of town, I don't know. But would you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And God says again, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, Abram is rather baffled at the wonder of this newfound theological principle. Again, God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous standing in their place. And so again, he tries to rush God in verse 29 saying, suppose there are 40 here, but God answers for the sake of the 40 again, I will not do it. Again, the same principle. Then he possibly feels himself, Abraham does, walking on some thin ice with God about all these questions. And so he says, oh God, please, let not your anger be against me and I'll speak. And of course, God is gracious to hear Abraham's prayer. And so Abraham continues, suppose 30 are found there. And God patiently answers, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And again, the same principle, God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous standing in their place. Again and again and again, Abraham needs to be reminded of the gospel. Church, do you need to be reminded of the gospel? That no matter what you've done, where you've been, where you struggle, that God has stood in your place so that you could have a place with him. You can't earn your way through morality, through political activism, through being a good neighbor, a kind person, going to church, doing religious tasks. There's nothing you could do to make yourself right before this God. He must stand in your place to take your sin and to give you his righteousness. Abraham needs to be reminded of the gospel over and over again, and so do you, Christian, because you will try to find your identity or your worth in anything other than God unless you're reminded over and over again. Christian, where are you struggling today to be reminded of God's love for you? What thoughts are you battling about your worth, your significance, God's goodness in your life? Where are you struggling? And do you see again and again God was willing to spare you and gave his son so that you could be in relationship with him and so he would cover you with grace and love and an unrelenting care over your life. We must be reminded of the gospel over and over again. Well, Abraham, just like us, needs to be reminded. And guys, he goes two more rounds with God. Two more rounds. Guys, dude's wearing me out. I'm trying to preach this. I'm like, this is... Just the same thing over and over again, but he's not wearing out the Lord, reminding him of the gospel. Verse 31, Abraham says again, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. 
God, suppose there's 20 that are found out there. And God answers, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he says, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I'm going to speak one more time, just once. Suppose 10. Suppose 10 are out there. And God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then what's interesting in this moment, the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, it was not an abrupt leaving. It was not an abandonment. It was a completion of a conversation. God went one way on to Sodom and Abraham returned to his house. And I love this passage because it's such a powerful and unique story that shows us at least two things. There's numerous things, but it shows at least two things in which how Abraham points us to Jesus. First thing we see is that Abraham points us to Jesus in what's revealed in the prayer. What's revealed in the prayer, it's namely the gospel. We're learning what theologians call the great exchange, that God is willing to exchange the unrighteous record of one for the righteous record of another. In fact, that's exactly what we see in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 21. It says it like this in one translation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the sin offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through that righteousness of Christ. Now, what I find interesting, though, guys, in this passage is why did Abraham stop at 10? Right? Like, that's an odd number to stop. Wouldn't you want to, like, have all your odds squared away and you want to get all the way from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10? And just to make sure you want to go to one, like, why did he stop and not go all the way to one? Why didn't he say, God, would you spare the city if there was just one righteous person willing to stand in the gap for all the rest? I think it's because Abraham knew that there probably weren't any truly righteous people in the city. And Abraham knew that his nephew Lot, who lived in that city, was not perfectly righteous, which, trust me, you're going to see in a few weeks. And he knew that through his previous interaction with the king of Sodom and the many soldiers that are part of his army when he rescued Lot years prior, that they weren't perfectly righteous. And Abraham knew of himself that he wasn't even perfectly righteous, so he couldn't even save them. He knew that someone else would have to come and that this passage is to create a longing in our hearts for a perfect one to come. So we get all the way to this crescendo, as Tim Keller says, he gets the seventh note on an eight-note scale and leaves us at the top, creating a longing in our heart for what about the one, though? What about the one that would come? Because if you know this passage, God does end up going to Sodom and he brings his justice And what we see is that God rescues Lot through this future righteousness that God is willing to afford. The fact that he ends with 10 creates a longing in us for a righteous one to come. In church, he already has come now. And our hope is in him. The longing that Abraham had for this city is now come. Guys, Abraham went before the Lord and prayed and intercede for this city about a Messiah that had not come yet. And the Messiah has now come in church. How has God moved in your heart to pray for our city? Think about your neighbor. Who lives next to you, above you, beneath you? What about your coworker? Who do you go to school with? Has God moved in your heart in such a way that you're willing to intercede and pray for their behalf? 
and maybe have conversations about the gospel, invite them into your life and care for them where they're at, introducing to them to maybe your testimony, maybe this church family. Abram was moved by the compassion of God and longed for this Messiah to come, that one, knowing he's not here yet, but that one is here now. Are you moved like Abram to pray for this city? To have a longing for others to know Christ? He knew that the perfect one has not yet come, but church, he has come now. And he is willing to take the unrighteous record of many, of the me, for the righteous record of himself. Second thing and last thing that we see here is that Abraham points us to Christ in his intercession. We see that Abraham's pointing to Jesus because we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, this. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And it's not Abraham. It's Christ Jesus, who then himself gave a ransom for all. Guys, just notice for a moment that Abraham stood in the place to pray for the city, but Jesus stood in our place to die for the city. Abraham sort of risked his life to stand before God as an attorney and sort of debate. He risked his life, but in Christ, he actually gave his life for the city. Jesus is the better Abraham. Abraham is not the full, complete mediator Because even in Abraham's prayer of mediation, what happened? Justice was not served. But in Christ Jesus, we see at the cross, the crossroads between God's justice and God's mercy. And only God himself can intercede on behalf of his people. And Christian, do you realize that today, if you have trusted in what God has done on the cross to take away your sin, it's because Christ interceded for you? He took your sin, went before the Father, and said, this is my daughter, this is my son. They've been forgiven, they're clean. And there's a rejoicing in the Trinity, a rejoicing in the heaven because God interceded on your behalf. We see even further, Hebrews 4 says this about Christ's intercession. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet, he was without sin. Let us then draw with confidence, draw near. We see that word again, draw near like Abraham did. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. God's grace is found through prayer, through who he is, that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Guys, do you realize that now even Christ and the Holy Spirit are interceding on your behalf. You, church, can bring every hardship, every temptation, every failure before him. And God is mediating. God is interceding on your behalf. He's praying with and for you. Do you even realize from Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is praying for and about you at all times? I don't know how that works, and I think that's amazing. That if you, church, ever feel like no one no one really sees you, like you're serving everybody else in your family at your work and you're giving over everything you got and you're like, no one's caring for me. Do you realize that there's a God who never sleeps because he's ensuring that all things work out for your good and that he's praying for you, he's mediating, he's interceding that God's will would be done in your life. 
This is a God that just didn't just intercede on the cross, but at every crossroads of your life, every moment, interceding on your behalf. Guys, by way of application, we want to take a moment at the conclusion here of the sermon to give you an opportunity to intercede like Abraham did on behalf of our city, on behalf of Forest Hills, on behalf of Brighton and Boston. Guys, what's interesting, Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says the secret to Abraham's lively prayer life is the theological depth in which he prays. The essence of his prayer is not asking for things for himself, which is okay, Christian, but he's not exploring his inner being, but what makes his prayer unique is the sophisticated yet profound and theological nature of the prayer. Abraham is focusing on the attributes of God. He's praying on the basis of God's nature. He's got one foot in the attribute of God's justice and the other foot on God's mercy, and he pushes off his prayer on that cornerstone. And church, it's with that in mind that we wanna pray like Abraham as we close. We wanna intercede for just three categories briefly together. Church, we wanna pray that God would help you rest and relish in the depths of the gospel. That's the first thing I want us to pray in a moment. One pastor said this, it's because of what Christ has done for me that there is nothing I can do in the future to make God love me more. And there is nothing I have done in the past to make God love me any less. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So church, you can rest from striving, rest from struggling to be enough because you have been made enough through God who is enough for you. So would you take a moment, and even just right now, I'm not gonna ask you to pray aloud or call anybody or raise hands, but in a, will you just bow your head? And would you intercede even on behalf of this own church? Would you intercede for those in your community group, your leaders, your deacons and deaconesses, your pastors? Would you pray that this church would rest and relish in the depths of the gospel? That we would understand not just doctrinally what God done, but what it means practically. Would you take a moment to pray? Take a moment, just a few seconds to pray that our church, this church, would relish and rest in the gospel. Take a moment to pray that. after you pray and intercede on behalf of this church, would you intercede on behalf of someone that you know that does not know yet who Jesus is? Would you pray for someone who is maybe far from God, but close to you? This is my friend Adam, who I'm praying for, that I've been friends since middle school, and he just moved to Boston. He works right down the street from my house. I meet with him and pray with him and talk with him and got a good friendship, but I want him to know Christ. Would you intercede on a person, one person, that may be far from God but close to you, would you intercede like Christ and Abraham on their behalf even right now? Take a moment, please, and do that.
thirdly, as you intercede for your friend or neighbor, guys, would you pray collectively for your neighborhood or your networks, your relationships, your work or your job? Pray for your neighborhood and your networks. Just like Abraham interceded for Sodom, would you intercede on behalf of this neighborhood? your street, your apartment complex. Would you take a moment and do that? List names before God and ask that God would move in that person's heart to lead them to faith and trust in Jesus. Would you do that now? thank you for hearing our prayers because of what Christ has done for us. You hear us so clearly and loudly and we know that you move through the power of prayer. God, we do pray for our neighbors, our friends, this church, our broader community around us that you would move in such a way that we may see revival in our day, in our city, amongst the lives of people that we love and we rub shoulders with that we're near. God, you came to earth and took on flesh, God, in our place so that we could have a place with you. And we want every friend and neighbor to know you. God, a life with you is fulfilling and it's joyous and it's satisfying. And Lord, we want every friend and neighbor to know that to not live under the weight of their guilt or sin or to journey to try to be enough through their job, to find love in relationships or find strength in working out or whatever the case may be, God, I pray that you would move in our city. Would you move through this church to make the gospel known? Because we intercede before you on behalf of Forest Hills and Boston. God, would you do something special and unique that we've not seen? God, would you move in such a way that you strengthen this church to take the boldness of the gospel and the humility of love and bring it to every heart, every life, here. May we see every neighbor in every neighborhood know who you are and what you've done. Would you strengthen the church and embolden us to make the gospel known? And God, we thank you and worship you that you would take the unrighteous record of many and give us your righteousness through Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.